having med school monday welcome to the micro my petters podcast my name is jamal my name is mo we created this podcast to give fellow pre-med students the opportunity to give an insight into each of their unique perspectives we understand that we're just students but we firmly believe that creating a safe space for all of us to share discuss and reflect on our experiences with other aspiring physicians can give us and our listeners a holistic foundation into the path into medical school as micropeders we hope to make a difference by extracting the knowledge we obtain from each episode and releasing it to our audience the journey to med school has lost for ups and downs and we're here to help you every step of the way everybody, welcome to episode four of the Micropipetters podcast. We're kind of sorry that we haven't been able to release our latest episode until now. But uh, like you guys, I'm sure yeah, we've been really busy and uh, ca- catching up with a lot of schoolwork. But uh, yeah, Jamal, how's that first month of school been for you so far? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of rough, honestly. I think definitely acquainting to the online environment again is kind of hard. A bunch more work is piling up too, because I remember... I just had a bunch of syllabus work, and now I just have, like, all my big assignments and everything. So, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, So, what classes are you taking? Like, anything that's hard? Anything chill? What's going on with you? Yeah, um, we're actually taking cell bio together, and I'm, uh, I've am i actually really enjoyed that. But uh, Orgo 2 is really is really good for me right now. So, um, I think that uh, just get through that, uh, hopefully get to the next semester, and then start studying, because that's uh, the ultimate goal. As we mentioned in the last episode, we're going to talk about everything. We feel that this is an issue that might be critical throughout the journey to becoming a physician. Without further ado, let's welcome our next guest on the Micropeders podcast, Moise Medija. Hey, guys. Uh, my name is Moise. Um, I graduated uh, undergrad in 2016, medical school in 2020. Um, I was a biochemistry major. Um, and, you know, I'm hoping to one day be a cardiologist. I'm currently in my first year of training in internal medicine. Um, initially, you know, I applied to medical school because I had a lot of exposure from my parents and my community. They're, uh, my father's physician. He's a hospitalist. So I kind of followed his route in internal medicine. Um, and I think it's a great career for you to, you know, have a good connection with people and be a leader in an exciting field that has science and technology. Um, so my journey so far is, uh, you know, is uh, kind of sad with the um, coronavirus situation coming into residency, but I've been pushing through it and it's been a good time so far. Hi guys, my name is Madiha and I'm a second year medical student. I graduated from VCU in 2019 with a degree in psychology. And uh, currently I'm a second year and I'm studying for my step one exam. So I haven't actually started like the clinical rotations or getting into the field, but I've always wanted to become a physician like my entire life. And I think um, a major reason that I was inspired to do that was just through personal experiences, and just kind of seeing that physicians are always the people that are there for their patients during like the most vulnerable time of the patient's life. So I think that's one thing that has always wanted, um, inspired me to continue in this field. So, yeah. My pleasure to meet both of y'all. Um, it's, I can tell you guys are really smart and uh, I hope to be able to learn a lot from you guys today. Um, but yeah, let's move right into the discussion at hand uh, in terms of ethics. Obviously, medical ethics are amplified because you quite often literally hold people's lives in your hand. Uh, based off your guys' experiences or your own opinions that you've developed over the years, what do you see as the most pressing ethical concerns facing physicians right now? Hmm. You know, I can go first. Um, well, one big thing that I've noticed uh, with the whole coronavirus pandemic is 
Um, for the past year almost, we've been treating patients without uh, having any family members or, or people around um, in the hospital. And it's, it's become quite a challenge. Uh, you know, you definitely have patients at times who are debilitated to the point where you, um, as a physician, cannot glean what they want, what's in their best interest, if they would like to be resuscitated, um, important questions that we ask anyone admitted to the hospital. And, you know, it, you know, there are sometimes I'm calling up somebody and, you know, they're telling me they're so-and-so's wife or so-and-so's husband, and I'm kind of taking them for face values. It's very hard um, to know what to do in the acute situation if you haven't seen anyone face-to-face -face, or you see a number in a chart and you're just assuming that uh, this is the person who's going to be making decisions for this, for this person who's otherwise uh, super sick. Um, I even have a terrible uh, experience where um, I think like a month into my intern year, I, I, I called for this, uh, this, this guy who was in the hospital and this lady says, oh yeah, she's, she's the wife and it's okay if he's not resuscitated, he's, he's lived his life. And I told my attending, and they're like, that, that's a little strange. This, this lady's okay just letting, letting this guy die that quickly, you know, first day in the hospital. And I call back, and I find out she's, like, like been dating him for the past month. And she's not actually legally married or anything. And it was pretty shocking. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty happy I went back to, to my attending to double check because it was a little strange that this lady was, you know, without much information, okay, with kind of taking away this patient's code status. Um, so it's been quite a challenge on, you know, taking care of patients um, when you can't really speak to their, their family members face to face. Uh, yeah, so I think for me, one of um, like the most pressing issues right now is access to healthcare. Um, so I'm actually part of an organization called AMA, which stands for American Medical Association. And a lot of times we advocate for, uh, you know, rural communities and different areas that just don't have access to healthcare. And I think um, one thing, even through like the um, COVID pandemic, I've seen just like so many areas that don't have a lot of supplies, a lot of like physicians, and it just really showed me kind of um, how important it is to have these resources. Um, I literally was volunteering at this uh, clinic for um, Native American patients. They were telling me how um, they like depend on this like free clinic once a month because they just don't have physicians that come in that area. So I think one thing that we really need to work on as future physicians is really expanding access to this healthcare and you know, continuing that as many areas as possible. That's, that's really cool. Um, take a little transition to that. So looking at where you are now, what advice would you give an aspiring physician? So someone going through the process right now. That's open to anyone. Okay. Answer, uh, yeah. I, I think the biggest thing that I would say is that you always wanna remember the end destination. Um, for me, at least, it's been so challenging, and I have to always remind myself that it's going to be worth it. And just having work ethic, I think, is probably one of the most important qualities that you need to have, um, because you just have all the studying and all these exams and all the stress. Um, one thing that I do is every night when I'm studying, I just remind myself that someday the studying and this information will someday be like that knowledge that could help save a patient or something like that. And I think that really keeps me going and just like continue to like give yourself pep talks and like motivate yourself because, you know, the pre-med journey and undergrad is brutal. And then when you go to med school, it's even more brutal. So you just have to like continue that, like the, the positive energy throughout the journey. 
I would, I would definitely echo that statement about uh, positive energy. There's a lot of the pre-med and med school journeys about, you know, kind of putting your head down and doing a lot of work. Um, one thing I will say is, you know, always keep that image of the end goal um, in your sights. Um, definitely even as, as a medical student, you'll have moments in time where you're thinking on what field or specialty you want to pursue. And you should realize that, you know, you might look at your seniors in residency or fellows um, and you need to remember that what you're aiming to do is to finally be that attending physician. And so you should look at what their work life is like and what their job is like, because residency is going to be brutal no matter what you do. Even if um, you go to a uh, you know, less intense residency uh, specialty, it'll still be a lot of work and a lot of learning. Um, and, you know, even if you're kind of just at the beginning of that journey as a pre-med student, um, it's important to know, you know, what you're kind of aiming for in the future. So that way you, you really understand the importance of, um, you know, hopefully what uh, your career will be and, and the responsibility that other people put towards you in your hands. Um, and so it's always nice to kind of think back and say, you know, one day I'll be that, that attending physician and that can kind of give you some ease um, throughout all the exams and, and you know, the effort that you're going to go through. So, yeah, I can really appreciate that advice that you guys gave us, um, especially Madiha said about um, making sure that you take care of yourself, positive energy. I know Jamal and I really reiterate that point to our listeners uh, every week talking about self-care, how important that is. Um, so I think because that a lot of the pre-med journey is putting your head down, doing the dirty work and uh, putting a lot of hours in ultimately to have that goal in mind. And uh, like Moyes also said, having that a representation of your goal, I think is also going to be very important. So I could um, those that bit of advice that you guys gave is um, it's going to be really useful for us in the future, I think. But um, yeah, uh, moving on, uh, there is a case study published by the AMA or the uh, the Journal of Ethics where um, it's, uh, it's last February they did a case study where a Spanish-speaking woman had chronic renal failure and came to the emergency department four times over a period of six months because she missed her uh, hemodialysis. And mm. she had more or less the same symptoms and the same signs, um, but they kept on sending her back because um, they scheduled and said, um, you know, we will be able to provide you this care. But the, the real pressing concern here was um, why did people keep on asking not why did people not ask what was going on to this woman um and eventually when a spanish-speaking attendant actually asked what had happened they found out that um that their that her grandchild was also had an unrelated chronic kidney condition and he needed to be seen in the medical center's pediatric nephrology clinic um and this poses a pretty big challenge for her because that medical center was located about seven miles away from where she lived and she didn't have the means to transport uh, herself to the clinic that she was supposed to go to. Um, and because this attending finally asked, um, they were able to figure out a solution for her and uh, ultimately get her dialysis treatment at the same nephrology clinic that, that her husband was at. So uh, uh, there's some pretty concerning implications for health equity here. For instance, like, why did it take um, four emergency department visits before anyone thought to ask her what was going on? And um, how much the label non-compliant have contributed to the delay in her receiving definitive? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a really good story kind of highlighting some of the issues we have in taking care of complicated patients who otherwise don't come from a good socioeconomic background. Um, you know, like uh, where, I, where I work now for residency, you know, a huge uh, 
proportion of our community is, is pretty marginalized. And I can tell you when we have a patient who's a Spanish speaking on our, on our list, you know, you'll have your, your 10 patients or so for the day. And when you find out one of them Spanish speaking, you kind of groan because if, if you don't speak Spanish yourself, you know, um, you know, the, the busyness of like the, the hospital and the, the, you know, kind of the quickness of your day kind of makes it tough to um, call up your translator services and, you know, go through the extended period of talking to somebody with a translator phone. And so I could completely, you know, I can completely visualize this patient and, in her own hospital, having to go down and admit them. And, you know, initially when she's probably in the hospital, if she's coming, coming in with a missed dialysis session, she probably can't speak very well. It's hard for her to breathe. And on top of that, she has the added language barrier of speaking in Spanish. And so it's probably tough for people to get a great history. And all they can really see is that she's got a lot of fluid on board because she's missed a, a bunch of dialysis. Um, and, you know, and just coming from from that same perspective as a healthcare provider now, you know, I'd say even though she's a, a great example of somebody who, you know, would benefit from social support and getting rides set up for her, finding a solution for her, you know, for every one of her, there's also, uh, unfortunately, some patients who are, are truly non-compliant and they kind of just don't go to dialysis for whatever reason or they think they can skip a few sessions. And so a huge part of this is teasing out the always having that difficulty of knowing, you know, who is, you know, someone who's maybe just harder to get through. There is not everyone, there, not every patient is somebody who you can help in healthcare. And you quickly learn this kind of the demoralizing aspect of, of medicine is that, you know, there will be some patients who just won't do what maybe they should, although it's up to their, it's up to them ultimately to do what they want to do. And so teasing out who are those patients and not labeling everyone as someone who's not compliant and, you know, finding out, uh, you know, finding the people who would truly benefit from from increased social support can, can really be challenging. And so we always try to make it an effort to find out why people, you know, do things like missed dialysis and use our social services to get them things like rides or taxis, but it can always be a challenge and it always can be difficult. Um, and I'd say, you know, in, in the busyness of our day and trying to discharge people and admit new patients, it, it sometimes it can be lost on us to take the, the time to find out uh, why certain people are having trouble with their healthcare. So it raises great points. Just to add to that, I think, um, just one thing that I would add is just any patient that comes in, you want to be really open-minded about kind of their situation. Cause I know a lot of times, um, you know, everyone has their like um, personal biases against, you know, certain groups of people. And I think as a physician, what you really have to do is set aside all of that and just look at the patient as, you know, an individual and focus on um, treating them as best as you can. And, um, you know, not really, letting like socioeconomic factors or um, things like that really limit or serve as a barrier um, towards providing that care. Yeah, I think um, that's, that's a pretty big issue. And I actually, uh, learning from the AMA Journal of Ethics, that um, this is actually a, a pretty widespread phenomenon where rather than looking for like a situational explanation for a behavior that you observe, you kind of attribute that behavior to uh, like a personality-based factor or a certain disposition. I think... Um, it says here that jumping to such a conclusion is known as the fun fundamental attribution error. Um, do you guys see that quite often being done, uh, especially to patients um, that are from uh, low income communities or marginalized uh, communities? Do you see that uh, being uh, represented in the healthcare field? You know, I, I would say that yeah, from a from you know like the perspective of thinking about how you know we work 
in our, our day-to-day lives, I'd say no physician truly wants to, you know, label patients or, you know, is coming in with that immediate thought process that, oh, this person may be, you know, lazy or just uh, un- unequipped to deal with their healthcare challenges or, or too healthcare literate. Um, and I, I think the, the true difficulty is, is that we certainly all see that. Um, I can I can think of already patients in, just from my intern year who um, required repeat hospitalizations for there to be a true understanding of what were the limiting factors and why they were, you know, receiving suboptimal health care. But the, the, I think the bigger issue is, is that we also have to realize that there may be this uh, fundamental attribution error where we are attributing qualities to people that they may not truly have. Um, but then there is this wide, wide group of patients who, who truly do exist. And, and, you know, you'll see it all the time, whether there's a patient who, um, you know, um, just maybe doesn't trust the healthcare system or certainly does for reasons outside of your control, um, you know, exhibit those features that we, we call non-compliant or, or, or medication non-adherence, you know. Um, there will always be people who just don't take their insulin because they don't take their insulin. And that's, you know, it's, it's a challenge on, on physicians that we have to take um, honestly in, in saying that even though there are people like that, we can't assume that all of our patients are like that or, or place a blame on them. Um, and so, you know, it's, I think it, it teaches us to always try and always um, double back and re-educate patients, whether they're in the hospital or, or in our clinic, to, to hope that they do better with their care and work with them as a team member. Um, but I would say, you know, it, it, it can be hard um, to always avoid that uh, error of just assuming, you know, someone on their, you know, next fifth or sixth or whatever or next readmission and thinking, oh, you know, this is just par for the course. Um, and sometimes certainly that can be a, a pretty terrible mistake that we make, um, especially when there truly is something going on that, that we can fix. I don't know, Madhya, if you've seen any of that in your, in your first two years of medical school. Um, yeah, I, I, well, I live in Richmond right now, and I go to school here, and so there's a, a lot of poverty here, and we see a lot of um, patients from really low socioeconomic backgrounds. So I think actually a couple times I've seen um, the physicians become really frustrated because of either the patients are non-compliant or they speak a different language, and I think one important reminder is you know, you can't have this frustration um, as a physician when you have these patients, because at the end of the day, it's your duty to um, take care of these patients. And I think like every time that I've seen this happen, um, it's not really, it doesn't really like progress in a positive way. Uh, You know, the patient's getting frustrated, then um, the physician's getting frustrated. And I think um, it's really just important to like take a step back and just reflect on that individual patient and like where they come from and then proceed with care. Those are all very good points. Um, I'm just gonna say a little detour and ask like most of our audiences like college students and like pre-med applicants. So obviously we're in a pandemic and telehealth has risen in, has risen in prominence. So are there any additional ethical obligations that you know of or that of like meeting a patient or that you're like aware of in these certain mm. circumstances? I think, you know, one that's become quick for us to deal with has been um, actually at the point of like discharging a patient or seeing a patient deciding whether or not they need a telehealth appointment. 
um, is, is one big thing that we always, you know, can maybe mistakenly think one way or the other for. And the other is actually deciding who, who gets in-person visits. Earlier in the pandemic, we had this situation where we could only offer so many in-person visits. And so, you know, there were plenty of patients who felt that they were disadvantaged, marginalized. Uh, many patients, you know, felt that there was racism being that they were being subject to. Um, and honestly, these are honest complaints. If, if something in your body hurts or you think you have a serious problem and no one's giving you the time of day to look at you straight in the face, um, you know, I can see why people would be frustrated by that. And so I think those were some of the, you know, issues earlier on in the pandemic when restrictions were tighter was um, thinking about who will actually get the opportunity to see their doctor face to face in a limited health health. Uh, resource setting and also our own decision making in terms of deciding who who will you know kind of get that added benefit of seeing their physician in person as opposed to um, just getting a phone call um, I think you know uh, other big things too are the you know the ethics of, of money um, people always think about billing and you know in-person visits pay more and there'll always be this kind of fight over you know wanting to maximize profit and I'm you know I think people have raised concerns that as telehealth grows in prominence and reimbursements grow for telehealth will there be people who kind of take advantage of the system and you know just do a bunch of telehealth and try to make some cash even if it might not be best for their patients so a lot of things to think about yeah just to add to that I think another part of the ethics is um the ethics of delivering like bad news over telehealth so I actually had to have a couple patients um during my psych unit where I had to deliver like really bad news through like a Zoom camera. And it, it was really uncomfortable for me because one thing that I really value is that in-person connection when you're delivering like this bad news to a patient. And so um, I found myself having to really pay attention to just like the, the patient's facial expressions and um, just trying to evaluate them through that. Because um, usually when, you know, a patient's in person, you can like see like all their body language and, you know, comfort them and like put your arm around them when they're like, when, you know, they just received like a cancer diagnosis. But with telehealth, um, you know, especially in the beginning of the pandemic, um, it was just really difficult because, you know, you couldn't have those in-person visits and deliver those, um, you know, unfortunate um, pieces of news. So I think that's like one thing to consider is just um, learning how best to communicate through um, telehealth and really have like some sort of connection with the patient. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. Um, I remember I was talking to uh, a few physicians that I know before this episode and uh, something that they touched on, like uh, Morgan's talking about, was having to um, choose between patients in a sense where you might have to choose a patient who's more complicated and needs um, help more critically, but uh, they pay less money, essentially, whereas a different patient who uh, needs the care less in a sense, but you can charge them more. For instance, you can give them no-show fees um, and you can just make a lot more money off of them. But uh, do you guys see that and how would you uh, adapt to try to get that mindset? Mm. I mean, right now, I, I can't really speak to the, I guess, uh, entirety of like the business aspect of, of medicine. I think, you know, what one thing I'll say is it's important to learn about, uh, maybe not so early when you're in your pre-med career, but um, you know, medical school really doesn't teach you much on that, and, and neither does, like, um, you know, big parts of residency, unless if you look for it, but then suddenly it's something you deal with every day. Um, and so even as a resident, we're pretty protected from that, um, where, you know, we kind of just see patients in a resident clinic, and so it's hard for me to say whether or not, you know, our clinic is somehow running in a way where it's trying to, it probably is doing certain things to make sure it's profitable, um, but I don't know if 
Um, I can really speak to the, um, you know, issues of deciding who, from a financial perspective, who who will benefit or not from getting a, a telehealth appointment. But one thing I will say is that, you know, one day it'll kind of be something that'll be in the forefront of what we do if, if we do choose to work in a, a non-academic setting and out in the community. Um, and so, you know, I think it'll, it'll, it kind of comes down to the same thing where if your patient population has good insurance, then you'll probably be able to bill them more for your visits. Um, and if not, then, you know, you'll need creative ways um, to, to figure out how to make a profitable uh, healthcare institution or business. And, you know, that, that aspect of medicine is always changing and evolving. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, those are all good points. I feel like, especially now, especially with psychiatry, actually, is primarily yeah. through telehealth. So, I mean, like, making appointments and stuff like that. So, it's, like, a whole different, like, field. And it's just crazy how it's just all, like, digitalized now. It's just amazing. Um, on, on a different note, like, if you guys are undergraduate students in the COVID pandemic, how would you recommend diversifying your application? Like, getting clinical hours, research opportunities, you know? What, what, would, you, yeah. what would you try? Do you want to answer first? Uh, sure, yeah. So um, I know there's actually a lot of virtual shadowing opportunities um, where physicians around the country will like Zoom students into their procedures. So I think that's one way to see um, the different specialties. Um, but I also think that this pandemic is actually a really good time to showcase your ability to just take charge and make a difference in the healthcare communities. So, um, you know, just an example, like a couple of students in my medical school class, they started a Zoom program where students can talk to like an elderly patient once a month and, you know, just kind of boost these elderly patients' morale in these really trying times. So it's just kind of like things like that, that, you know, it can diversify your application, but it also makes a difference in, in an individual's life. So I think just kind of focus on doing things that you really like doing and how can you contribute to this community during this pandemic? Oh, I agree. Um, you know, I think, you know, it, it's tough because you lose a lot of the traditional ways on how you can, I guess, you know, add up to your application. I always tell people, you know, long-term investments and endeavors in uh, your, your pre-medical application will, will go farther than little short-term stints. So find something you like doing and, and stick with it and it makes, make it look meaningful. Um, I'd say, you know, I think, I think research has, uh, for the most part, still gone on in most campuses, I think. Um, it might be tougher since, you know, you'll have to adapt as a student and like, you know, maybe email a lot of people more, cold email to get a project and, um, you know, do a lot of things over Zoom. Um, and then in terms of, you know, finding shadowing opportunities, I, you know, I, I think that has probably been really challenging for people. But I'd say that the saving grace is that, it, you know, as a pre-med, I thought, you know, shadowing was like this really important thing that like you need five million hours. Um, but, you know, I only ended up acquiring around 100 hours over about five specialties. And I had uh, medical students in my class at the University of Virginia who had 40, 80 hours. I think that the true, you know, reasoning behind having some shadowing experience is to show people that you understand that end goal, what you're trying to visualize of being an attending. You have an idea of certain specialties of what uh, the, the workday and the, the job of a physician looks like. Um, but truly, I think what adds to the diversity of your application is not um, a ton of shadowing hours as much as it is some experience and exposure. And what truly will kind of give you that that distance for uh, a strong application is some long-term investments in, um, you know, either uh, research type, educational, scholarly activity versus um, 
having exposure to, you know, some sort of volunteerism that speaks to you and is meaningful. And I think at least the, the COVID op- situation does make it tougher to do certain kinds of volunteering. But as Midi has said, it also opens this broad new, um, you know, space for people to be creative and think about how can we, you know, help people who can't go to the grocery store, you know, because of social distancing, people had those in- initiatives to, um, you know, help those more severely impacted by the pandemic. And so we can shift our gears and think about new ways to, um, I guess, do the things we still like to do in terms of the volunteering perspective, but um, also use those as strong opportunities to showcase how we'd be great applicants um, and uh, for medical schools. And so, you know, I think it's a tough situation for us all, but we can look for the silver lining. Yeah, I think that's that's really important. I can certainly relate to uh, having difficulty finding shadowing hours or clinical hours. Um, I remember last year I reached out to an orthopedic surgeon who I was hoping to uh, shadow for a second consecutive summer, but he told me, uh, you know, it's sort of only essential personnel, so you're not going to be able to come this year. And so I remember how difficult that was, but um, I think especially now being able to find opportunities online really shows that you have that initiative and it makes, if you actually find it, that it, that opportunity is more impressive and it will stand out. And there weren't many uh, th- things present to you, you were able to go and seek something out like teleshadowing. Um, and I think that that would be a really good thing to advise students who are struggling to find something right now. Um, but yeah, let's move right on. Um, I know in pop culture, like uh, Grey's Anatomy is really popular. And um, it, with that, the term, the Hippocratic Oath is tossed around quite a bit. Um, and a phrase we hear used a lot is above all, no one. Do you think that this translates into some physicians maybe not doing anything when instead they might choose to take a risk with a patient that might help? Mm. Well, I'd say that this this uh, phrase is pretty well hammered into the thought processes of, of most physicians. And, uh, you know, research, at least now, like more modern research is, has been really thinking about um, a lot of the things that we used to do in medicine, especially things like procedures and um, different protocols and realizing that, you know, either they don't help or that they're that they're not very, um, uh, you know, they, they have a terrible side effect profile and a limited benefit profile. And so I would say that, um, you know, maybe it, I, I would look at it differently that in a historic perspective, I think um, medicine used to be more aggressive. And when, you know, you guys go to med school, you'll learn about you're the older doctor will tell you, oh, when I was a medical student, I did 10 procedures a day and, you know, teach one uh, or whatever it's called, like see one, teach one, do one. Um, and now things are a lot more protocolized and there's more safety for patient safety aspects um, and quality control initiatives are a huge thing now in medicine. And so I think this is a, a pretty standard saying in medicine because we know from our past that we were pretty aggressive in healthcare and we're more, um, you know, we, patients had a lot less autonomy and a lot less understanding of what was going on in them in hospital. And I think because of that, a lot of, you know, people had a lot of bad outcomes or, or didn't do as well in the hospital. And so, you know, I think the transition now is, um, you know, physicians may choose not to do certain things. And a lot of patients will say, hey, why am I not getting, getting this procedure or this treatment? And a huge part of our job is to say, well, for your situation or for, you know, your patient profile, um, a lot of the data and evidence points to actually, you know, those procedures and surgeries or medications not being beneficial for you. Um, you know, a lot of times one, one big, big easy example is outpatient antibiotics where patients come in saying, hey, you know, doc, you got to give me something. I, I have a cold and the doctor has to be like, 
these antibiotics are more likely to hurt you than help you. So why would I give them to you? And that's always a big discussion. So I don't think there are physicians who choose not to do things to avoid harm, because I think in medicine, it's, you know, better safe than sorry is usually a a pretty, a pretty safe way to play the game. Um, Obviously there are times that you have to be, you know, tough and stick to your guns because you might have to be aggressive with a therapy that you think will benefit your patient. But that usually comes with a a discussion with them for them to understand the risks and the benefits involved. Uh, But I, I would say that for the most part, you know, we're all scared of doing harm. And so we try our best not to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I I feel agree. I mean, it's also information. We have a lot more information now, you know, in the seventies and eighties, they had electroconvulsive therapy. You know, they thought that was like above all doing no harm, but in actuality did way more harm than it like actually intended. So that's like, a big example of how the technology is like radically changed, you know, how we understand things. Um, so, um, so on another note, what is the most rewarding experience in your medical journey so far? So, um, since I'm actually just in preclinicals right now, I only had like a little bit of experience in the clinics, but, um, this past semester, we had like a preceptorship where we work with one physician for the whole semester and actually get to see patients and conduct physical exams and histories. So um, these three experiences have just been super, super rewarding for me. And I actually remember having this one patient who had just come out of surgery and then I had to do a cardiovascular physical exam on them and take their history. And when I was talking to them, you know, I, I did the, uh, the physical exam, I talked to them. And then afterwards, I could tell that they just really wanted someone to just be there for them because they just came out of procedure. And um, because of COVID, uh, they couldn't have any like family come and visit them. And so um, through just taking history, I kind of like figured that out. And so I spent a couple extra moments with them and I just talked to them and gave them some extra time. And it was just so rewarding because after just like it was an extra 10 minutes maybe of talking to them they just kept thanking me and were like you're like the angel and like all this stuff and just gave me so many blessings and it just really showed me the beauty in medicine really lies in this connection with your patient and I think experiences like that have just been so rewarding because I realized this is the field that I really want to be in um just having just these patients that are just so happy for just these extra moments of time. And so um, I think, I think that is one of the most rewarding things. Uh, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I could also share, you know, one one thing I like about medicine is that um, a lot of times we get caught up in the the busyness of our day. Um, When you guys are, you know, in your internal, you'll know like a huge aspect of the early, when you're early on in your training, you're doing all this work. And I can't tell you, I've had days where I feel more like, you know, the world's best secretary and the world's best doctor. Um, And I've had great patients who, um, you know, really appreciate you setting up all their appointments and getting their discharge paperwork, all their discharge meds. Um, But I'd echo what Nadia says is that when you get to connect with your patients, it's a great time. And at least in my specialty, internal medicine, they they get the interns to pull out patient central lines and you have to kind of hold pressure on their neck for 10 minutes. Um, And that's kind of actually the time where I I actually, one of the things I love doing, people hate doing that, but I always enjoy it because. Uh, you know, even though I got, it's kind of awkward, you know, like kind of squeezing down on, your, on their neck, but um, that's when you get to sit and talk, talk to them about their day. Um, and actually, like a month ago, this lady, I was, I was, uh, I pulled out her central line and she was sitting there and I asked her what she, what she did and what she grew up and 
she's like telling me she used to be a cotton farmer back in Georgia. And you know, people have very interesting, interesting things. This guy uh, two, two weeks ago is telling me about his whole life, like in the Vietnam War and things. And so that's when you really get to learn your patients, when you kind of get the moment to sit back and talk with them. And it really makes you appreciate your work. All right. So now we know to avoid Dr. Nasser. He enjoys <laughs> putting pressure on people's necks. <laughs> yeah, I think this is a really great episode. I want to thank Moise and Madea for coming on. Two very knowledgeable people that I was uh, blessed to be able to get some advice from. Uh, yeah, Jamal, where are we up to next week? Yeah. Um, so next week, stay tuned for Saruman. We'll be talking about the Caribbean and um, applying in our current status as a med school student. So stay tuned for that, guys. And on that note, um, I hope you guys have a nice day and uh, stay safe, guys. Yep. Thank you guys for tuning in. Stay safe. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Pipe Petters podcast.